Take your Bibles, if you would, turn them to the book of Revelation. We're going to pick it up in chapter 15. We're going to look at chapter 15 and hopefully most of chapter 16 tonight. We're coming to, uh, moving towards a close on our study through the book of Revelation. And tonight we're going to enter into uh, a study of the vials of wrath or or your Bible might say the bowls of wrath, and that's found in Revelation 15 and 16. And this is basically the last stop before the seals are done. So if you remember way back when, and we got the seven seals on this scroll, it talks about as each one is opened, then an event takes place in the timeline of Revelation. So this is kind of the last stop on it, and we're going to, Pretty much as we, as we take this last step here, we're going to move into more familiar territory, talking about um, the return of Christ with His bride and the great white throne and, and eternal things. So we're going to be moving into some more familiar territory. I'm kind of relieved about that, actually. It's not easy to kind of teach through some of this stuff in Revelation, some of this heavy stuff, this prophetic stuff, especially on a Wednesday night. It's not always easy to wrap our minds around, uh, but... It's here for our learning. It's here for, uh, for us to know, so therefore it's important. So we'll, uh, we'll take a look. The best way to introduce them is to say what the Bible says about it. Revelation chapter 15 and 1. We'll start there. It says, I saw another sign in heaven. Remember, this is John as he's seeing what Christ has revealed to him. I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, Seven angels having the seven last plagues, for in them is filled up the wrath of God. Now go to chapter 16 and verse 1. And it says, And I heard a great voice out of the temple saying to the seven angels, Go your ways and pour out the vials of the wrath of God upon the earth. So we get a, a, a dual explanation here. The first thing John sees is this vision with or he sees the same vision. He, the first way he describes it is angels having the seven last plagues, and then he hears a voice saying, Go pour out the vials of the wrath of God upon the earth. These plagues, these vials of wrath, I believe, are the same thing. They are the seven last judgments of God, the outpouring of God's wrath on the earth. Um, the word vial or bowl, it's, it's this long kind of shallow, broad cup. So these angels have these containers that have in them um, what has been described as the wine of the wrath of God, or uh, here it's just described as the wrath of God. With this occurrence, the wrath of God is complete. The wrath of God against rebellion on man on this earth. Now we have to understand there's a difference here between like eternity and hell and what that's all about because that is the wrath of God. That's the wrath of God against sin. That is the penalty for sin. But the wrath of God that we're talking about that is filled up and that will be poured out is the wrath or anger of God against rebellious man's work on this earth. All that he's let happen from Eden until this point. All of the pride, all of the rejection, all of man's attempts, all of the towers of Babel, all things like that, at this point, God says no, and boom, He lets His wrath fly. 
I don't know if that phrase strikes you, because some people it does. To some people, to hear that term, the wrath of God, is like nails on a chalkboard. They hate it. They don't like that. That's a part of God we don't like. God gets mad. You ever, you, or do you have a, a pretty good idea of what wrath is? It's like an outburst, right? It's like uh, when I get filled up to here with my kids and it just, they could do something silly and it comes out, right? It's this outburst of wrath or you get cut off on the freeway or whatever it is. This outpouring of wrath. It's not, it's not like a, a, a calm anger. It's heated anger. And to hear that about God makes us uncomfortable sometimes. We like a passive, quiet, nice God. We like Him to be all lovey-dovey. My buddy and me, God. That's what we like. That's what most of mainstream Christianity likes. We don't like, as one person puts it, a warrior God. One who rises up against rebellion, one who puts down rebellion and uh, reigns supreme above all else. We don't like that notion. But the fact is, whether or not we like it, the Bible talks over and over again about the wrath of God, the wrath of God. In fact, God's wrath is the balance to His immense grace and mercy. All of us would say God is gracious and God is merciful, right? Beyond what we even deserve, beyond what the world deserves, God is merciful. Well, if He's always merciful and always gracious, where is the penalty for sin? Where is justice? Justice, wrath, all of that is the perfect balance to His grace and to His mercy. Without it, He has no right to punish sin. His wrath is the privilege of His holiness, the demand of His holiness. He is holy, so He cannot abide sin, so He must punish it. Right? That's why man is cast out of the garden. That's why Satan was cast out of heaven. He must punish sin. He cannot let it go. That's why the cross is so horrible. That's why the death of Jesus is described in Isaiah chapter 53 and other places, even in the gospel accounts, as a crushing, as a as a mortal wound, as, as, as a beating. It was horrible because Jesus bore the wrath of God for sin. Because sin is so bad. Because God is so holy. And that's why His judgments are so harsh, it seems, at times. So when we hear the wrath of God, it shouldn't, it shouldn't put us off. The, the phrase is not new. We see it just in Revelation some 13 times. Thirteen times it's mentioned in the book of Revelation, the wrath of God. And it's not just used about God, it's used about Jesus. In seal 6, when, his, when seal 6 opens in Revelation chapter 6, the people of the earth say, hide us from the face of the Lamb for the day of His wrath has come. Hide us from the face of Christ because His wrath is here now. But most of the times it's used specifically as this phrase, the wrath of God. It's not new to Scripture either, is it? There are instances where His wrath is poured out, like the flood, or Sodom and Gomorrah, 
or the Babylonian captivity, what happens here and what we're going to read about and study tonight is the full and final exhaustion of it. The full and final punishing of man's rebellion. So let's take a look here in Revelation chapter 15. Verse 1 says, I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels having the seven last plagues, for in them is filled up the wrath of God. He says he sees a sign in heaven, and this phrase great and marvelous literally is mind-blowing. Mega beyond human comprehension. Um, John will only use that a couple times when he's describing things that happen in Revelation. It's like it, it calls to something very special. Whoa, guys, I saw this. I couldn't even comprehend it. And what he sees is seven angels having seven plagues that fill up the wrath of God. Anybody know what the number seven can be compared to in Scripture? Perfection, completion, right? Do you see that kind of language here? Seven angels, seven plagues, wrath is filled up. All of this is going to be happening is, is going to be uh, completeness, perfection in God pouring out His judgment. His wrath is going to be satisfied against the wicked. Okay? Let's read, let's read chapter 15, and then we'll walk through just a couple points. I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels having the seven last plagues, for in them is filled up the wrath of God. And I saw, as it were, a sea of glass mingled with fire, and them that had gotten the victory over the beast, and over his image, and over his mark, and over the number of his name, stand on the sea of glass, having the harps of God. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are thy works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are thy ways, thou King of saints. Who shall not fear thee, O Lord, and glorify thy name? For thou only art holy. For all nations shall come and worship before thee, for thy judgments are made manifest. And after that I looked, and behold, the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony in heaven was opened. And the seven angels came out of the temple, having the seven plagues, clothed in pure and white linen, having their breasts girded with golden girdles. And one of the four beasts gave unto the seven angels seven golden vials, full of the wrath of God, who liveth forever and ever. And the temple was filled with the smoke from the glory of God and from His power, and no man was able to enter into the temple till the seven plagues of the seven angels were fulfilled. Pretty awesome looking scene, right? John sees this. He says, man, it's hard for me to even explain. And he sees these seven angels preparing, and then immediately he shifts his focus to the people surrounding. And I, if I can be quite honest... In my 30-something years around being church, being in church and hearing sermons on, and lessons on this and studying it for myself, that the, the, the vials, this kind of progression that John goes through has long puzzled me. I don't know where to put it. I never knew where to put it. Especially the way, just, just the, the kind of progression that he uses. I'll explain that here in a second. These verses have always caused me to place the vials, the seven vials, after the second coming of Christ. So it would be something like this. You have the tribulation, the coming of Christ, the vials of wrath, and, while, and then the millennial reign. The church is going to be gathered to Him, and while we meet Him in the air, the wrath is poured out on the, the earth. 
After all, we are saved from wrath. That's kind of where I place things and, and uh, the timeline I've put together. But since, since this study, I believe differently. It has changed. And I'll explain that as we go along. So we have to answer the question, who are these people? Because right away, he says, I, I, see these people getting, I see these angels getting ready with the seven plagues, and boom, we see this group of people who have victory over the beast and over his image and over his mark, and they're standing before the Lord, singing to him. Who is that? Is that the raptured church? Because many would say, yes, that is the raptured church, and he is, or they are with him now. I'm not so sure. For certain, it's a peaceful scene, right? These people stand in victory. They're standing before the Lord, and it describes them as victors, and they have the harps of God. By the way, if you ever wonder why I say, are we going to be in heaven forever with harps? This is the verse people draw it from. Um, but they, they're standing before Him, and they, they're singing to Him. But I want you to compare it with another passage, another vision we get in Revelation chapter 6. If you want to turn over there, you can. Let me read it to you. Revelation 6 and 9 says this, And when he had opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of them that were slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, dost thou not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth? And white robes was given to every one of them, and it was said unto them that they should rest yet for a little season until, the, until their fellow servants also and their brethren, that they should be killed as they were, should be fulfilled. I think these are the same people. The same people who have gotten victory over the beast so far, who back in the fifth seal are saying, how long? They're, they're standing before him. How long until you avenge us? How long until your wrath is poured out? How long till you judge the earth? And what are they told? Just a little while. And now, as that is beginning to unfold in, the, in chapter 15, all of a sudden you have this group standing before him singing these songs of judgment. Now is the time. What do they say in verse, um, into verse 3? Great and marvelous are thy works, Lord God, Almighty, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are thy ways, thou King of saints. They're all going to bow down before you. I don't think this is the raptured church, raptured church. I think this is those in heaven waiting for the gathering to happen. Waiting for it to unfold. Waiting, anticipating, and singing some very specific songs. Verse 3, chapter 15 and verse 3. They sing the song of Moses, the servant of God. Has anybody ever read that? Anybody familiar with that at all? This is like a catchy tune, right? It must have something to do with like songs about Egypt for kids, right? Certainly this is a fun, catchy song like this little light of mine and they're standing before God singing it. Well, let's check out this song of Moses. Keep your finger here if you want to turn with me. Exodus chapter 15. Israel comes out of Egypt. They go through the Red Sea. The Lord wipes Pharaoh and his chariots out with the Red Sea, and they sing a song. Exodus 15.1, Then sang Moses and the children of Israel this song to the Lord, and spake, saying, 
I will sing unto the Lord, for he hath triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he hath thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and song, and he has become my salvation. He is my God, and I will prepare him an habitation, my Father's God, and I will exalt him. That sounds great so far, right? Sounds like something we should sing in Sunday service. What's the next line? Verse 3, the Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. And then it goes on through the rest of the chapter to describe how God took Pharaoh out. How he destroyed Pharaoh. How he threw him down to the bottom of the sea and stretched out his right hand, verse 12, and the earth swallowed him. Telling the story of God's victory. There's another song of Moses too. Deuteronomy chapter 31. Deuteronomy chapter 31 and verse 30. This is as they're getting ready to enter the promised land. There's another song that Moses sings. Deuteronomy 31.30 says, Moses spake in the ears of all the congregation the words of the song until they were ended. Verse, chapter 32, verse 1. Give ear, O ye heavens, and I will speak, and hear, O earth, the words of my mouth. My doctrine shall drop as the rain, my speech shall distill as the dew, as the small rain upon the tender herb, and as the showers upon the grass, because I will publish the name of the Lord. Ascribe ye greatness uh, unto our God. He is the rock, His work is perfect, all his ways are judgment, a God of truth, and without iniquity, just and right is he. Again, starts out in very high praise, and it goes on through much of the chapter to tell the story of how God delivered them from Israel. Fast forward to verse 35. Still, the song that Moses is singing, and look what happens. This is God speaking now. To me belongeth vengeance and recompense. Their foot shall slide in due time, for the day of their calamity is at hand, and the things that shall come upon them make haste. For the Lord shall judge His people and repent Himself for His servants when He seeth that their power is gone. There is none shut up or left. When He shall say, Where are their gods, their rock in whom they trusted, which did eat the fat of their sacrifices and drank the wine of their drink offerings? Let them rise up and help you and be your protection. See now that I, even I, am He. And there is no God with me. I kill, and I make alive. I wound, and I heal. Neither is there any that can deliver out of my hand. For I lift up my hand to heaven, and I say, I live forever. If I whet my glittering sword, and my hand take hold on judgment, I will render vengeance to my enemies, and I will reward them that hate me. I will make mine arrows drunk with blood, and my sword shall devour flesh, and that with the blood of the slain and of the captives from the beginning of the revenges upon the enemy. Rejoice, O ye nations, with his people, for he will avenge the blood of his servants and will render vengeance to his adversaries and will be merciful unto his land and unto his people. <laughs> That's not a nice song, is it? That's not a happy song kids are going to skip around. No, it's a song of judgment. They're singing that song as the vials of wrath begin to be poured out. You get the, the frame of mind now? 
Now you understand what they're, they're standing in front of the Lord singing. It's time. You said you were going to avenge your, uh, yourself against your enemies. It's time to do that now. That's what this is. It's time for you to rise up and judge, Lord. They sing that and they say, Great are you, great are your works, Lord. Just and true are your ways. Who will not fear you? You alone are holy. All nations will come and worship before thee, for your judgments are made manifest. I believe these are the saints that are waiting for the second coming, for the gathering together, and they know it is approaching as his wrath begins to pour it out. Go to chapter 16. At the end of chapter 15, we get another beautiful vision as these angels come in. and The temple is filled with smoke as God has His vengeance. And chapter 16 describes that for us. So now, let me ask a question. Let's put a pause button. Can you think of, in the biblical narrative, that means all of the Bible, all of the stories of the Bible, can you think in the biblical narrative... A time when God's wrath against the known world was poured out in a systematic stream of events. What story in the Bible tells about God's wrath coming on the earth in a stream of events? Events that happen one right after another. The flood, maybe? Exodus and Egypt is what I'm thinking of. What do we call them? The ten plagues. Can you name them? <laughs> Beside number 10. <laughs> we, most of us get, what would you say? COVID. COVID. That's in there somewhere. Most of us can think of the Passover, the water, the blood, frogs. We got locusts, we got lice, we got cattle being killed, hail and fire, darkness. Locusts, lice and locusts. I'm missing one. If we think about it, we could probably halfway name them. I doubt any of us would be able to name them in order that they happened. We know, I know number one and ten, it's the water and the blood and then the Passover, uh, but or the death of the firstborn. Let me say it that way. But that's that's a, a striking example of God pouring His wrath against the known world. Egypt was the ruling power, and to deliver His people out of Egypt. He brings a systematic stream of events that could be described as His wrath. I don't think it any coincidence that what we're going to see here mirrors some of the ten plagues almost exactly. I don't think it's coincidence. I think it's by design. So I want you to keep that in mind as we, we kind of read through some of these things. I don't, I don't have a whole lot to say because, quite frankly, the Bible just pretty much lays it out here and, and um, let's just see what it says so vial number one verse one chapter 16 verse one says I heard a great voice out of the temple saying to the saving angels go your ways pour out the vials of the wrath of God upon the earth so it begins to happen verse two chapter 16 and verse two is the first vial or the first bowl and the first went and poured out his vial upon the earth and there fell a noisome and grievous sore upon the men which had the mark of the beast, and upon them which worshipped his image. Does that sound similar to a plague? 
Remember what it was? The boils. The boils. If memory serves me right, the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, uses the same uh, terminology here. And this is talking about a nasty, painful sore. (laughs) Exodus is pretty... uh, When it's describing what happens in Egypt, it calls them erupting boils. It's nasty, (laughs) gross. And here it's called a grievous, grievous, a noisome and grievous or pain-filled, putrid, nasty, painful sore. Notice on whom? Who does this sore affect? All mankind? No. Those that have the mark of the beast. It is my belief it's wherever the mark is taken that this sore happens. Whether it's the forehead or the right hand. This nasty, painful sore. It's funny when you kind of Google some of this stuff. Don't use Google for biblical research. Use it for entertainment purposes only. (laughs) But (coughs) you Google some of this stuff and it's like, well, it's the microchips that have all our information in them. And there's a radiation bomb that goes off, which they describe as one of the trumpets. And all these things explode in the people that have them. So if they're in your forehead or in your right hand, the microchips all of a sudden explode, blah, blah, blah. So it's one way to explain it. I, I, I don't know about that, but it's definitely on those who took the mark of the beast, right? Similar to the way it was on the Egyptians and not the Israelites. And it's also very similar to trumpet number five. Chapter nine, let me read you. Well, chapter nine tells us about it. That's the locusts from hell. You remember that? They got these, they come up out of the bottomless pit and they've got these stingers, but they only sting those who worship the beast. Let me. It was commanded them that they should not hurt the grass of the earth, neither any green thing, neither any tree, but only those men which have not the seal of God in their foreheads. And so they got this nasty sting that they're going after those who are not sealed by God. And this vial lines up almost exactly with that in its description. Incidentally, well... That's vial one. Vial number two is in chapter, or verse three, chapter 16 and verse three. The second angel poured out his vial upon the sea and it became as the blood of a dead man, and every living soul died in the sea. Vial 3, And the third angel poured out his vial upon the rivers and fountains of waters, and they became blood. And I heard the angel of the waters say, Thou art righteous, O Lord, which art and wast and shalt be, because thou hast judged thus. For they have shed the blood of the saints and prophets, and thou hast given them blood to drink, for they are worthy. And I heard another out of the altar say, Even so, Lord God Almighty, true and righteous are their judgments. That sounds familiar, right? Vial 2 and vial 3. Water to blood. Water to blood. Very similar to the first plague in Exodus chapter 7. In fact, fact, it's not only the Nile that turns to blood, it's all the water in the vessels that turns to blood. And here with these vials, it's the sea and all fresh water. You take for granted turning on the tap, don't you? I remember 
There's a couple things I remember from the news when I was a kid. Goodness, had to be Matthew's age or younger. The big one was always going to come. Like the big one could be any day. And California, <laughs> California is basically going to fall off in the ocean and we're going to float away. That was some 20 years, 20-something years ago. I remember hearing that on the news. That made me so scared. Oh, I was so scared going to bed at night, every little window rattle. Because we had the old school windows. We didn't have this dual pane highfalutin stuff. We had the, the, the one pane that rattled if you walked too hard in the house. So an earthquake sounded like you were inside a jar of marbles, you know. Every little window rattle, me and my brothers. Is this it? Is this a big one? And another, I remember saying the water supply was going to run out. That there wasn't enough groundwater, the groundwater was drying up or something like that. All, all that to say, it was a couple weeks after I remember hearing that on the TV, I went to turn the tap on and nothing came out. Up and down, it happened. It happened just like the news said. Mom, what happened? Your dad's working on the pipe. He shut the water off at the, at the street. I didn't know it, but it just I just knew it wasn't coming out of the tap. We take some of those things for granted, right? You want to drink a water, you go to the fridge and get a water bottle. You're out of water bottles, you go to the store and you get some. What happens when there's no water to drink? What are we going to do? It says, as this vial is poured out, all the water in the sea turns to blood. All the fresh water in the next vial is, is turned to blood. Can you imagine the smell? The smell of a dead body is blood. That's what makes it stink like it does. Can you imagine the smell that will be worldwide because of this? This is very similar to trumpet number two and trumpet number three where the sea is struck with a mountain and a star called Wormwood hits the fountains of fresh water. Very similar. Could be even at the same time. I want you to see something here though. And you can take it for what it's worth. First vial affects those who have the mark of the beast. Notice the language that's used in vial two and three. Verse 6, chapter 16, 6. For they have shed the blood of the saints and prophets, and thou hast given them blood to drink, for they are worthy. Huh. Well, his faithful people hasn't killed his prophets, have we? But sinful man has, right? Rebellious man has. Could it be that just as in both the Exodus account, in the Exodus account, it uses similar language as if it's affecting the Egyptians and not the Israelites. Does this exclude the faithful? I don't know. So get vial number four, verse eight. And the fourth angel poured out his vial upon the sun. And the power was given unto him to scorch men with fire. And men were scorched with a great heat. And blasphemed the name of God, which hath power over these plagues. And they repented not to give him glory. This is the sun on crack. We think it's bad now. I go to my brother's house and I think it's bad when it's 120. This is the sun taken to a whole new level. Scorching men. Scorching men. Who have sores on an earth that has putrid blood 
for water. It's going to be gross. It's going to be disgusting. And instead of repentance, what do you see? Blasphemy, right? They repent not. They curse and blaspheme the name of God. Again, there's some language in there that just makes me wonder. Power was given to scorch men with fire, and men were scorched and blasphemed, and they repented not. People who are faithful don't blaspheme, right? So is it all men that are scorched, or is it something that's going on with just people who are already separated from Him. You see what I'm saying there? They did. Those people. So, just again, keep, keep that things kind of in the back of your mind. Vial 5. The fifth angel poured out his vial, verse 10, upon the seat of the beast. And the kingdom was full of darkness, and they gnawed their tongues for pain, and blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains, their sores, and repented not of their deeds. Again, that's exactly like another plague. That's plague number 9. In Exodus chapter 10, darkness. It's described in Exodus as darkness that could be felt. And here it's the same thing. It says they gnaw their tongues for pain. I've been in blackness so deep it's disorienting. You don't know which way is which. It does something to your senses when your eyes are wide open and you cannot distinguish anything but blackness. You can't tell where the floor is, where the ceiling is, anything. Can you imagine if it is completely black with all of these things compounding until that? And it's a darkness that's deep that you could be felt? It says they gnaw their tongues for pain and they blaspheme again. Again, very simple, similar to trumpet number four, where there's a darkness for a third part of the day and the night. And the focus is on what? Where is this darkness at? The kingdom and the seed of the beast. Much like Egypt. Because Exodus chapter 10 says all the children of Israel had light in their dwellings. Let me just address that straight on from here. These vials of wrath. Who who is the focus of them? We already know in this book there's a lot of wrath going on in Revelation. Not just the wrath of God, but there's the wrath of Satan. Chapter 12 says, Woe to the inhabitants of the earth, for the devil has come down to you having great wrath, and he knoweth he hath but a short time. And then at that moment, you see the rise of Antichrist described and the beginning of the last three and a half years of the tribulation. So the Antichrist, the false prophet, the mark of the beast, we already know who that focuses. It's his church, right? To try to stamp out Israel and his church. It's Satan trying to, to destroy us. So all, all of that, although controlled by God and allowed by God, could be called Satan's wrath. The Antichrist, the false prophet, are the human means and method for this satanic attack. And so the mark of the beast and the penalties for not taking it and not worshiping the Antichrist are directed toward God's people. That makes sense, right? We understand that. God's wrath, when it is outpoured, is not focused on His people. It's focused on those who reject Him, right? You get a different feeling when you read the trumpets. You read the passages about the mark of the beast, and you know who He's coming for, and all the world is pretty much 
protected because they have the mark. When the wrath of God comes, you see a focus against sin and him taking out the kingdom, taking out, of, uh, taking out the beast. You get a different feeling. I do not believe the wrath of God is directed towards all mankind, but to the rebellious, unrepentant, willfully stubborn man. Those who readily give allegiance to the beast, which will be most of the world, but those who readily take the mark, all of that, not necessarily his own people. Is it too far outside of biblical history, outside of biblical example, to say that as God pours His wrath out, He will protect His people? I don't think so. I think it goes along exactly with what we read in the Bible. He protected His people in the flood, right? He protected His people in Egypt. He protected His people in Babylon. It's my belief He'll protect His people through His outpouring of wrath here. So that begins God's wrath against the earth. Vial 6 and vial 7 are pretty important. Let me just introduce a little bit about it in the time we got left. Vial number 6. It's pretty Im- confusing language. Figurative language. Let's see what it says. Chapter 16 and verse 12. The sixth angel poured out his vial upon the great river Euphrates, and the water was dried up, that the way of the kings of the east might be prepared. And I saw three unclean spirits like frogs come out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. For they are the spirits of devils working miracles which go forth into the kings of the earth and of the whole world to gather them to the battle of that great day of God Almighty. Verse 15. Behold, I come as a thief. Blessed is he that watcheth and keepeth his garments lest he walk naked and they see his shame. And he gathered them together into the place called in the Hebrew tongue, Armageddon. This vial is pretty packed. It's kind of hard for us to understand, but we got a drying up river, we got devil frogs, we got a divine warding, and we got Armageddon, all packed into this one vial. You have to kind of step back and, and consider, okay, what does this mean? Let's start with the river. The river Euphrates is a very, very old river. It's ancient, like in the Garden of Eden, Genesis chapter 2, pre-sin, pre-fall ancient. It's described as one of the rivers flowing out of the Garden of Eden. And you hear about it all in Scripture from them. So it's pretty important in biblical history. There's been some important kingdoms on it. The most, no- the most notable is the kingdom of Babylon. Babylon, the city, sat over the river Euphrates. The river ran under it. So it was right on this river. In fact, well, we can talk about that next week. And here here it is again at the close of Scripture and at the close of time being mentioned again. So it's pretty important. What's going on? He says the, the vial is poured out and the river is dried up. Is this literal so the kings can go across and walk on dry land? I mean, does that, is it, can it be literal like the water literally stopped flowing? 
There's an article I came across written in 2018 says the Tigris Euphrates Basin is losing groundwater faster than any other place on earth. By the 2020s there will be no water at all during the summer in the Euphrates. It will soon be reduced to a barren dusty riverbed. This is a crisis but nobody is paying attention to it that was written in February 2018 in the Smithsonian Magazine. Kind of sounds like a load of global warming garbage, but I read about it here in Scripture too. Evidently, the water is kind of drying up in this great river. That said, I don't believe it's literal. I don't believe it's literal. So I, I think I'll leave the explanation to that for next week as well as getting into the seventh vial and some of these things that are discussed here in the end of this chapter. Again, kind of hard to wrap our minds around. It's a big subject, this pouring out of the wrath of God, but um, it's given so we can know. It's given so we can see what is happening and I believe God's people will be protected in it. So I pray that's helpful. Pray it piques your interest on some things. And next week we'll pick it up, finish it, and move on to eternal things. So thanks for those who are tuning in. And we'll see you soon. Any questions, comments? Yes, I know exactly. Yes, you're right. Um, I believe these people we see there in Revelation 15-2 are those who have already died, not just during the tribulation, but of all time, I think, standing before the Lord. Because actually, seal 5 happens. Seal 6, we know, is the return of Christ, right? All that we studied, we kind of pieced it all together from the Old Testament. Boom, that happens. It's the next thing that happens after they ask how long. So I think seal 5 happens. And you've got trumpets going on, the vials beginning to be poured out, or the vials beginning to be poured out. They say, how long? He says, hold on just a little bit. They see things happening, then they get up, all right, it's time. And they start singing the song, like, all right, judge them, Lord, pour out your wrath. Because at the end of, at vial 7, I believe is the return, vial 7, Seal six, trumpet seven, they all kind of line up. I need to I need to print up that, that timeline I had up on the screen. It's all right there. And he comes with those people. The dead in Christ rise first, right? They he comes with them and we are caught up together 
to meet them and him in the air. But I believe it's those people that's talked about, the dead in Christ, um, his faithful people that are with him. Yes. Yes. Yes, I believe at that moment when when Christ comes, that's when it happens. At the last trump, twinkling of an eye, shout of the archangel, they come, we come, boom. They are accumulating, not overlapping. The bowls. They're accumulating. So, uh, <clears throat> vial one happens, you got a sore. Vial two comes along. The sore doesn't go away. Sore's still there. Now you've got water turned to blood. Vial three comes along. Those don't go away. They're still there. So it it accumulates, but. Yes, in that sense, you're right. Yes, yes, I get, I get what you're saying, but they do overlap. Trumpets, trumpets are going on somewhere along the line. Vials start happening. It, it all, it's like Revelation goes like this right towards the end. Just the activity in the last three and a half years, just spikes through the roof. We think it stretches out over a seven-year time. You got a little going here, a little going there. No, peaceful for the first three and a half. Last three and a half. Hits, man, it's just, it ramps way up until Christ comes. And then, then everything, it's like it just stops, boom, as he comes and he conquers. So you got a lot of overlapping things, but running in sequence as well. Does that make sense? There's, there's, that's a Google search. <laughs> I'm not on camera, right? No. I've come across a couple. You're familiar with the, the phrase in um, Matthew 24, except the days be shortened for the elect's sake, right? Then the no flesh should survive. Talking about 